Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2021. Episode 340. The data is in, now what? Presented by Tanya Popita, Sarah Strang, Erica Chung, and Eric Lang. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm uh, My name is Eric Lang. I'm here um, with the inestimable uh, uh, Tanya Papada and Sarah Stang and Erica Chung. Uh, we are here to talk about uh, gender, uh, the intersection of, of race, gender, and uh, demographics in games. Um, these three women have done incredible detail, exhaustive research into the field, have come up um, data-driven insights and uh, and academically rigorous uh, academically rigorously tested results um, and that they're doing incredibly important work for our industry and I just I'd love to see uh, more of it um, we're here to talk with uh, these three uh, lovely ladies this weekend this weekend oh my god this evening sorry uh, I'm Eric I make games don't worry about me <laughs> Uh, sorry, I'm just going to give you a quick introduction. Uh, so uh, Tanya, um, Tanya has. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, how the from data-driven research how the demographics of our industry doesn't match our audience and insights driven from that. Uh, Sarah, of course, has research-driven insight into gender representation and, of course, wants to talk about monsters. It's Halloween. Uh, Erica is going to talk to us about the intersection of race and gender in fan culture and how inclusivity plays a large part role in that. Uh, I am here to be the uh, casual guy in the in the audience and ask questions. That is so great. Uh, take it away. Sorry. Perfect. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I was just saying to Eric that I first met him uh, when he was in Snakes and Lattes in Toronto uh, around the gathering of friends. And my partner and I, you know, entered Snakes and Lattes, saw Eric uh, demoing Godfather and we're just staring at him with our, our mouths open. So this is a this is a huge deal to me to be sharing a stage uh, once again with uh, Eric Lang, who I'm a huge fan of. And that was actually also a notable historic event because we uh, we delivered the worst loss that Tom Vassell ever had in Cosmic Encounter, and it wasn't because we were good. It was just because we were so excruciatingly Canadian and apologizing constantly that we threw him off his game. And we actually have a, a signed uh, Cosmic Encounter card that the, the loser category is the loser um, uh, group of of, uh, of fighters uh, that says never forget. So it was a historic event meeting Eric Lang and, and doing that as well. So I decided to do my entire PhD dissertation on board games because I'm obsessed uh, with board games. And I decided to look at, um, you know, race and gender and how it plays out in the hobby. And I'm actually I'm very pleased to uh, announce that uh, my, my committee has gotten back to me. Uh, so I'm closer than ever to being able to release the entire thing. It's huge. It's about 230 pages of content about, and it's a multi-threaded, uh, multi-method uh, uh, dissertation about board games, race, and gender. And what I found out during the research is I, I used a bunch of different things. I basically looked at, okay, who designs board games? Who gets to design board games? Looking at Board Game Geek as a, as a data set. And I also looked at the cover art 
of board games to see, okay, you know, there's a lot of questions. I saw a lot of chatter online. I couldn't find the answer to these questions, so I decided to do it myself. And I counted and counted many thousands of figures and uh, hundreds of, of games to kind of analyze, you know, what's going on in terms of representation. And Sarah has so much more about that in, in a moment. But what I also found out was um, that, you know, the, the audience doesn't map to the representation that we find in board games. Um, and what's also really interesting to me is I wanted to answer the question, does this matter to board gamers? Does this matter? And what I found was a survey that I did of 320 active, avid, passionate, diehard board gamers on Board Game Geek. Uh, the most uh, feedback I got were from Board Game Geek people on, on and had profiles. I didn't get a lot of traction. I got a little traction on Twitter. I got a little traction on the, um, the Reddit uh, board game channel. But the, by far, it was Board Game Geek users that gave me this feedback. And what I found out was pretty passionate responses to, is there a lack of equitable racial representation in board game artwork? And what I got back was 84% agreed or strongly agreed board gaming has a problem with a lack of equitable racial representation. And similarly, uh, at 83.6%, uh, a lack of equitable gender representation in board game artwork. And, you know, when you compare it to population, to demography worldwide, um, and you see the, the findings that I will share in a moment, 80% of the world's population are Black Indigenous persons, 80%. And in the U.S., 57.8% um, is non-white, uh, is white non-Hispanic population. And then you delve into that a little bit more deeply, and you see that about 25% of the U.S. population is white non-Hispanic straight males. And you know, you, you compare and contrast that to some of the findings from my research. You look at board game art, as I did, uh, painstakingly counting all of these figures, almost 2,000 figures that I counted by hand, and you find that 76.8% of all cover art, where there is human representation, where it can be identified, is, is men, is male presenting in terms of a man. And only 23.2% is of a woman. And we won't get into, because Sarah is going to deal with that a lot more, what that represent representation of women looks like, um, which is not always very positive. And then similarly, 82.5% of the representation on board game covers is white presenting, whereas only 17.5% was BIPOC, Black Indigenous person of color. So you've got this incredible disconnect where, you know, the audience isn't really, uh, the, the, the addressable audience for board games is not being reflected in the artwork, nor in the labor pool of who designs games. Um, what I found in an analysis of 400 board game geek games is 92.6% were white men who, who designed those board games. So you have this incredible disconnect with the population the addressable market. I used to be in marketing. I used to help companies in, in large uh, multinational um, communications, marketing, strategic consulting firms to say, okay, what do we need to do to attract a market? And I used to do a lot of work, particularly with startups, to say, okay, this is what you need to do. This is the sort of basic level of research you need to look at your addressable market and see if you're addressing them. And I've written a piece that's poised to go out shortly, and I make some really significant parallels between early tech 
and the board game market, talking about the inflection point that board games are in right now. They have an opportunity. Will they actually take it in terms of going after that addressable market? That is the question. And I think that the big, the big takeaway for me in terms of board game spaces and the problems the sector and the hobby need to solve, um, we had, I had, in terms of the feedback to the online survey, one in three of the pool of diehard passionate gamers that I, I polled, I, I surveyed for this research, told me that they agreed or strongly agreed that they have experienced homophobic remarks while engaging in the board game hobby. Um, they had experienced unwelcome sexual advances, one in three. Um, another example of a one in three uh, situation. One in three, if, if they engage with the board game topic online, they receive threats. They receive uh, rude messages, insults. And one of the, the, the dynamics of that, again, coming from a marketing perspective, is that delimits the growth of a sector, right? That is a huge um, issue in terms of where do you go, especially when you consider that about 25% of the U.S. population, one of the largest consumer markets in the world, 25% is white, straight men. So you have to think about where do you go from here? And, you know, to use an old tech expression, the Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm chestnut that everyone talks about in tech, you got your beachhead, you've established your beachhead. Now you have to radiate it out, address new markets. And if you don't do that, you will not thrive, right? From a board game business. And moreover, the, the big, big issue for board gaming, and I think the alarm bells that I saw in some of the, the research data is one in three before the pandemic started, avoided public events, public board gaming events, stores, conventions, because they didn't like that dynamic. It didn't feel welcome in that space. And so this is a really, really important question for board gaming uh, from a sector perspective and a hobby perspective, is how do you fix that? Um, and what can you do to make the space more inclusive and you know, help that growth trajectory um, in that sector to, to really take off because you're welcoming people in. And I think the big last point that I'd like to make about this is representation is only one part of the equation. And that's why I did a multi-method thing. I did an empirical study, a visual analysis of the cover arts, um, an analysis of the labor pool, and then also asked people, does this matter to you? And what I got back was overwhelming passion. The last stat I wanna share with you is a stat about um, the labor pool of gaming, because that's, I think, a, a big dynamic uh, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to put some representation on the cover art and we're done. One of the other things I found out was 51.6, just a little over half of my sample, were more likely to play a game designed by a Black Indigenous person uh, designer. And 56.9% were more likely to purchase a game designed by a Black Indigenous person of color designer. Um, so there's a huge economic imperative here. And again, one last point, 49.7% are more likely to play a game designed by a, a woman designer and 54.9% more likely to purchase a game designed by a woman designer. So for publishers out there that might be listening to this, this is, this is, this is just good business. Representation, inclusion, diversity, good, good business. And, and you have to think about it in a, in a really holistic, multi-threaded way. Um, so that's kind of my overview. I'll stop here. Uh, and ask if there's any questions or and just turn things over to my co-panelists.
Uh, so I think we're just jumping into to my talk before we do do questions, right? Okay. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah. So thanks so much for uh, for having me here, and thank you for leading us, Eric. Uh, I'm very happy to be part of this really important conversation. Um, so I'm a feminist game scholar. I recently received my PhD from the Communication and Culture Program at York University in Toronto. Research in general focuses on gender representation in games, and there is a lot to cover on that topic, as you might imagine. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about a specific kind of representation that isn't really talked about all that much and is very appropriate for this spooky season, monsters. Okay, so as we know by now, games have always kind of struggled to represent anyone who isn't a straight, white, able-bodied adult man in varied, nuanced, or positive ways. Uh, critics and scholars have been objecting to the erasure, misrepresentation, and po problematic portrayals of women, racialized people, queerness, disability, and really anyone who could be considered the other uh, in comparison to that sort of dominant demographic. And this is hardly surprising, as we've been dealing with this issue in all forms of media in Western culture. Uh, the lack of diversity um, behind the camera, so to speak, or in the writer's room, uh, results in homogenous portrayals on screen or in games, uh, on the, in, in the sort of um, the stores, in the sort of events, and all these kind of spaces. Um, the widespread kind of cultural assumption that, that game players all look a certain way and all want to play a certain kind of game means that change has been kind of slow, even as player demographics have drastically shifted over the past couple of decades, uh, as Tanya, ta Tanya talked about. But we know by now that representation matters. The way a game character looks matters, whether in promotional materials or the art found on the box or in the manual. This includes their body, their face, their hair, their clothing, tattoos, piercings, everything you see, but also their statistics, their abilities, their backstories. All those aspects are potentially full of meaning, right? So regardless who is likely to be playing the game you're making, um, although as we've seen, uh, you might be surprised at who's going to be playing your game, um, the way you represent people, especially from groups who have historically been erased, marginalized, or portrayed in harmful ways, matters, right? Who you market to and the way you market matters. Not only might your choices be alienating a key segment of the market demographic or potential new players, the way people are portrayed in all media sends messages about those people, right? This is because games are art, you know. They're loaded with ideological meaning and have significant cultural value. They're important. You all know that, I hope. We all know that. Creators, you inevitably incorporate your beliefs and values into the art you create. So my work critically analyzes game content with the intention of shedding light on problems, pointing to potential possibilities and areas of positive change. While a lot of work has been done on gender representation in games specifically, though as much as I feel is needed given the ongoing problems of sexism uh, in game content, that work that has been done has largely focused on the portrayal of human women as damsels in distress, uh, rewards for the player, um, sexualized protagonists, or background decorations sort of subject to the male gaze. Um, while these portrayals are, of course, harmful, one specific area has been largely ignored by scholars and critics, uh, and that's monstrosity. So presenting a woman as a monstrous, horrific, repulsive, deadly creature that exists in the game only to be an enemy, right, confronted, fought, and slain, is, in my opinion, just as harmful as the damsel in distress trope, um, if not worse, right? 
And the lack of work on gender and monstrosity in games is kind of surprising, given how much gender representation has been a hot topic of game scholarship and criticism, given how ubiquitous monsters are in games, right? They're almost guaranteed to be a central component of most role-playing games, at least. Um, and scholars have long discussed how monsters in mythology, folklore, literature, um, popular culture function as symbolic representations or proxies of all kinds of unwanted others, right? So the, this means that the monstrous body is a cultural body. It reveals our cultural fears, desires, anxieties, and fantasies. And regardless of how fantastical and imaginative they are, monsters often represent that which is um, feared, hated, reviled, and repressed, while also being these kind of fascinating and irresistible figures. The label of monster can therefore serve to marginalize, vilify, justify the persecution of certain groups, right? This label has been most commonly used against people of other races, ethnicities, or religions, people with disabilities or non-normative bodies, and most importantly for my work and my talk here today, women. In other words, women are kind of doubly in trouble. Uh, not only are they often the victims of monstrous aggression, uh, they're also commonly portrayed as the monsters. So think of examples like the succubus, right, or the siren, um, the medusa, uh, deadly seductive femme fatale monsters that embody this sort of misogynistic distrust and fear of female sexuality, as well as patriarchal attempts to control that sexuality by framing it as monstrous and evil or relegating it to like a kinky fetish that needs to be owned or tamed. This sexualized monster is often revealed through a bait-and-switch trope uh, that's really common with female monstrosity across media, where the player encounters this beautiful woman who's later revealed to be a monster in disguise. The woman is usually, like, mysterious and seductive or sweet and charming, and then the reveal usually has her physically transform into something horrific and grotesque. This kind of implies that beautiful women are deceptive, untrustworthy, that they'll lure you in with their feminine wiles, but it's a trap, right? They're actually evil and dangerous. They'll try to eat you. <laughs> what kind of message does this send to audiences? Or consider the kind of opposite end of the spectrum, the hag or the crone, old appearing monstrous women uh, that we see across media and in mythology and even fairy tales. We see them especially in games. Um, I see uh, the hag or crone figure as embodying this intersection of sexism and ageism, right? Uh, the hag has been in games since the beginning, right? She's a well-known monster in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, in D&D's Vestiary, the Monster Manual, the hags are described as, quote, withered crones whose forms reflect only the wickedness in their hearts, right? Um, and the description of them continues, uh, drawing this clear image of women with withered faces, framed by uh, long frayed hair, complete with horrid uh, moles and warts that dot their blotchy skin. Those are all quotes from the Monster Manual. Hags are immortal, though, so their aged appearance has nothing to do with actual aging. Rather, these writers reveal their ageist perspective by equating this elderly appearance with the hag's supposed wickedness or evilness. On top of this, hags change their appearance to deceive and seduce players. They steal players' life energy through sexual activity in their dreams. It's very weird. They kidnap and devour babies in order to reproduce. So they kind of embody all of these worst sort of sexist tropes related to female monstrosity that we see time and time again in mythology, literature, and popular culture. Um, and the hag has continued to feature as a monster in every new edition of the Monster Manual, so this is an ongoing issue. Um, Alyssa Melamed uh, has written that, and this is a quote, aging with its catalog of fleshly indignities is the human face of death, and it's a woman's face. There's no male counterpart to the witcher hag or any male figure who rivals the horror and loathing she inspires. 
She's the scapegoat par excellence for our fear of aging. So it's kind of a way to think that, yeah, there's this female monster, but why is there no male equivalent to this? And why do we think that's okay? Why do we accept that? So to wrap this up, I want to emphasize that I'm not saying that there should be no female monsters in games. Rather, I'm advocating for monsters that are not monstrous in relation to their biological femaleness or their sexuality or their old age, right? Because those are sort of areas that we've seen some problematic tropes. Um, tropes that are, are overused, tired, and derivative as well, right? Like we've seen them time and time again. Um, these monsters tend to embody our society's deeply held uh, fears regarding female power. And the fact that they're horrific enemies to be slain by the players speaks to how stories told in patriarchal societies and all media work to justify the oppression of women. Um, so what I hope to accomplish on my, with my work on monstrosity is to shed some light on this very specific yet widespread kind of problematic gender representation in games that has so far flown really under the radar. Monstrosity is intertwined with representation, um, specifically regarding gender in this case, though of course it's also connected to race, disability, age, body size, queerness. Killing a monster in a game seems ordinary and obvious. Um, we've been telling stories about killing monsters since time immemorial. But when we start to ask what kinds of monsters our heroes kill and why, a particularly terrifying picture starts to form. Uh, and that brings me to this sort of million dollar question, right, for today's talk. Like, what's next? Like, what do we do about this? Uh, well, I don't really have any magical solution to stop this from happening like that, um, but it is still happening, right? New games are coming out every year that utilize the same harmful design tropes. Um, every time I see a new game announced, odds are I'll say something like, oh, there's more fodder for my research, which is great for my research, but not so great for the situation. Um, I think we need to foster critical media literacy, of course, and teach emerging game designers to not just repeat the same tropes they've seen in the games they grew up playing. That, combined with changing the actual demographics of who's making games and pushing the industry to tell different types of stories. Um, that's why I'm here to speak to you today, right? Hopefully this has got you thinking a little bit more about the design of monsters in your games and what kinds of messages they might be sending. Um, and maybe you haven't thought about monsters this way before. Instead, uh, so in, in games, this message hits really hard, right? Because the player is the one forced to enact violence against these monstrous women, fighting and murdering them to reap the rewards, whatever that looks like, maybe loot their corpses, maybe even win the game. So instead of designing female monsters that simply embody patriarchal mythology and misogynistic attitudes, game designers could instead re-envision monstrosity, rethink it. The fundamental ambiguity of the monster, right, it's both repulsive and attractive, terrifying and fascinating, allows for potential feminist reclamation. Could designers imagine monstrosity that celebrates female empowerment and alternative or transgressive female bodies instead of marginalizing them and framing them as threatening and evil, right? Rethinking monstrosity might allow developers or, or game designers to challenge the problematic tropes embedded in fantasy media and create space for new fantastical worlds populated by new fantastical bodies. Stop there. Thank you. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, sorry, I had to unmute myself quickly. My name is Erica. Uh, I'm Eric I'm also, uh, I'm currently a PhD candidate in the same program as my friends and colleagues, uh, Sarah and Tanya. I am currently a PhD candidate in the Joint Communication and Culture Program. Um, I'm currently based in Toronto, and I would like to also acknowledge that um, Toronto is uh, on the traditional territory of many Indigenous peoples, including the Anishinaabe, the Mississauga, and the Haudenosaunee. 
And so uh, I'd like to quickly introduce that my research area is in fan studies and in comic studies. And so not exactly in games, but I am a big fan of popular culture. And I think you can see in the background, I have posters of, two of my favorite video game series on the wall. And so as a general person who loves uh, pop culture, fan culture, and also focused on the issues of representation along the intersectional lines of race and gender, I would like to share with you some ways to address uh, the challenges and uh, and the thought process potentially needed when we think about how to form inclusive space, um, particularly inclusive fan spaces, because um, I think it's important to note that not everyone has the same, um, not everyone can es escape into fan spaces as equally as we would like to imagine. And so I would like to begin by sharing a quick anecdote from when I was 13 years old. Um, I was 13 and that was the first time I ever went into a game store by myself. Uh, no parents. I went um, after school and I had spent a couple weeks making sure I learned the proper terminology um, of, of a video game series I wanted to purchase. Um, I wanted to make sure I had gotten the right name, the right date of release, um, and I made sure I made a list of questions. Um, so that when I went into the video game store, I could just go right up to the counter and ask directly to the to the person there. I also made sure I relaxed my voice so that um, partly in, in effort to combat my nervousness, but I purposely made sure my voice was lower uh, in hopes that people in the store would take me more seriously. Because oftentimes uh, w um, women's voices that are high pitched are not taken as valid or as seriously as uh, their male counterparts. And so the reason I share this anecdote is because I want to illustrate that even as a teenager, I unconsciously recognized how these spaces, how fan spaces and game spaces in particular were, um, were shared and defined by specific forms of knowledge, performance, behavior. In, but, and on top of that, um, as, a, as a young Asian Chinese Canadian girl, um, along gender and racial uh, lines as well. When we consider how spaces are formed, especially um, what, what, what the question of what does it mean to create inclusive spaces, it requires a lot of reflection and reevaluation of casual norms we take for granted. So little things like such as adjusting my voice or making sure I learn proper terminology, things that for many people you wouldn't have to second guess and yet I spent two weeks preparing to go into a video game store by myself. Uh, for many marginalized fans, it's not 100% possible to escape into fandom or fan spaces. Various forms of gatekeeping, whether it's knowledge, behavior, and practice, like I mentioned, can be used as barriers of entry into certain uh, fan spaces or gaming spaces, or even be forms of measurement, of measuring if you are valid enough to be part of that space. And so I think in... Um, there's there's a wonderful article written by Stitch. Um, they are a pop culture writer for uh, Teen Vogue. Uh, and I would highly recommend um, people just Googling this writer because um, they are a wonderful critical uh, writer. Um, but they have an article specifically on the reemergence and the popularity of tabletop games. And they kind of trace some of the, uh, the forms of gatekeeping that have existed in ta the tabletop gaming uh, space. And so they review how um, there's forms to test other players, whether or not such as black 
characters can exist in D&D, um, how um, girls haven't always been welcomed uh, when playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons as well. And so I want to highlight this because um, when media such as games reflect problematic stereotypes, as my, as my friend Sarah and Tanya have highlighted, uh, whether it's a racist stereotype or a trans uh, transphobic joke passed off as a poor punchline, it's not possible for marginalized players to ignore that. And it's not possible to escape fully into that experience because their the passion or the game or the object that people are fascinated and want more of is the is is the thing that people are not just spending time and energy on. But in some cases, it's also the place where they're investing a lot of money into. And so uh, whether you collect board games, video games, or in my case, you do not want to know how many comic books I have stored away at this point. It is, it is time, energy, and money uh, invested. And so I think it's important to c uh, consider that um, these forms of systemic inequalities need, need, may be questioned in challenging fan spaces. Uh, such as sexism and racism and transphobia. Um, but they can. I think it's also important to remember that fan spaces, they're not utopias. And so these forms of systemic inequalities can also be replicated. And so I think it's important for us to consider that, you know, fan spaces are not homogenous. They're not one thing. And so when you are considering about, when you're thinking about engaging with um, fan communities, it's important to, to be reflective and critical of, um, what are what are, what's taken for granted? What kinds of participation or knowledge is considered valid or accepted? Especially when we uh, consider how fans are connected and um, how fan spaces are connected and reflective reflective of the larger culture. So it's important to remember that fan spaces and gaming spaces they're not they don't they do not exist in isolation. And so currently in my research, I am in the process of interviewing. Uh, people who self-identify as um, women of color who are fans of comics. However, while it's too early for me to provide any hard uh, analysis, I would like to share some of my observations. And I think these observations might be potentially helpful when we consider what, we, what steps can be taken to not only question our cultural norms in our uh, spaces of hobby and games, but also how can we potentially play an active role in addressing systemic issues? And so one thing I think it's important to consider um, is what, in relation to how marginalized fans, whether uh, they self-identify along the lines of race, gender, or, uh, or able-bodiedness or disabledness, is to consider um, why uh, narratives that better reflect their lived experiences. People often will choose uh, things that may reflect their lived experiences with more nuance and with, with respect. And so one, I think it's important to consider what are some potential ways to form greater sense of safety and community within a space. All, a lot, oftentimes um, safety can be compromised as um, when we consider forms of gatekeeping, but also microaggressions. Um, Sometimes when you've been, when you receive dismissal or when your concerns have been ignored multiple times, even if you think the space is safe, it may not be safe for someone else. Two, I think it's important to, for us to also consider ways to reduce the emotional labor for uh, marginalized fans 
to engage and participate if that is what they wish to, but also ways to reduce the emotional labor required for cross-identification. And so I think Tanya's point about mentioning how um, the art on games, most of the time they're not of women, they're not of racialized people, they're not of queer, of queer individuals either, but they're often of white cisgender men. And so having to do the emotional work of cross-identification, another thing that is cumulative. Three, I think it's also important for us to consider ways when marginal, marginalized clients wish to make themselves visible and vocal um, that we consider how, how, are, how can this, if people wish to participate, what are ways can we nurture and support them? Because when you're new to a fandom, when you're new to a game, there's a learning curve. And um, I don't know about you, but the first time I played a video game, I sucked at it. I, I died a lot. Um, and so I think it's really important for us to consider that, you know, marginalized fans will navigate and negotiate their relationship with fan spaces. And so it's we can't just assume everyone is homogenous. And for community organizers and for institutions and companies, I think it's critically important for, for everyone to be not only reflective, but conscious of what kind of practices, behaviors, um, and language is, is being highlighted and spotlighted. Because um, sometimes, uh, not only, it's not, it's not just about, oops, something fell through the cracks, but it's also um, by highlighting certain parts of the behavior, you're not only giving it um, attention, but it's also providing validity and authority to that. And so um, I will end my little talk here. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy and excited for our next step of conversation. So thank you for your time, everyone. Loved every word of this. I mean, we've, we had this talk, the three of us had this talk, uh, well, a variation of this talk about two months ago. Um, and um, in those two months, uh, uh, you all have given me a lot, uh, a lot to think about, obviously, but um, um, some really critical context for experiences that I've had. I mean, I've been in this industry for 20 years as a professional, right? And the um, the the way I mean, when when I was when I started in this industry 20 years ago, a conversation like this would have been unthinkable, right? It would have been considered graduate level PhD work, right? I can see right now in the comments that, that there are people that are are that are kind of nodding along and agreeing with that, right? That, I mean, that doesn't happen before. That gives me hope. Um, uh, and uh, thank you very much for that because the work that you're doing is uh, is contributing meaningfully to that. Um, I have a couple of questions for you, but I'd love to open up to the audience if... Uh, yeah. if the audience is listening. Um, we have a couple of questions from the audience here. Uh, hi, I'm MLG. I'm gonna be your facilitator for tonight, but please, Eric, why don't you ask your questions first? Oh, sure. So, um, look, the three of you, um, like myself, uh, who, who is somebody who's very vocal about issues like this on uh, in, in public social spaces, we experience a lot of pushback, right? Um, and the uh, it's not even worth talking about the 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 egregious pushback. We we can we can ignore that, put that to the side, right? But um, this the 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 pushback we have from people who are like uh, who listen to a conversation like this, to, uh, to talk like this. And I can see the gears grinding, or I can, I can see like, like, oh God, you're just at, like, 
all I'm trying to do is escape. I just want to do this for fun. I, all you're doing, you're, you're giving me more homework. Why are you giving me more homework? Um, what's in this for me, right? So uh, that, that is the unspoken question, right? Behind that pushback. Um, but uh, before I lay this on you, right? Like this is, um, this comes from, uh, this comes from questions like, um, well, are you sure? Are, are you sure there's actual racism in the industry or is it, are you just seeing racism where it doesn't exist? Or uh, isn't, uh, isn't cancel culture or call out culture more dangerous than, uh, isn't the, the, the cure more dangerous than the, the disease? Or, uh, or some variants of, I haven't seen this. Are you sure this is really actually a problem? Uh, which is why I very much appreciate your data-driven approach. Um, so my question is like, is do you, in, in the way you've thought of this, is, is there a simple way to uh, to articulate like what is in it for the gamer? What's in it for for the gamer to to do the work to make their spaces safer? You know, I I can feel just a just a bit of that. Um, so I'm I'm a middle aged uh, white suburban woman uh, with a corporate background. Um, you know, mainly in high tech and life sciences. And I decided to go back to school, do my PhD. I don't, I don't even know why. Uh, but I was really, really interested in, I was really interested in, like, I'm very interested in market research. I used to do uh, dashboards. And I will tell you that, and this is actually, you know, relevant to an article that I've, I've, I've finished, and it's, I think, going to be appearing shortly in Analog Game Studies. Um, it matters whether your sector and that, this is me talking money. It matters whether your sector is healthy. You want to see great new content. You want waves of amazing stuff. You 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 you're passionate about a hobby. You got to make sure your hobby and that sector are healthy, right? They they need to be healthy because if you want something to flourish that you love, that I love, um, we we have we we're, we're this house is obsessed with board games and content and new and interesting ideas. And to Erica's point, um, we want to hear and, and, and experience new stories, right? We're, we're, we're a white, suburban, middle-aged couple. And, and what I perceive, what I see in the sector is an unhealthiness right now. And it, 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 it alarms me as a hobbyist, because I've been, I've been, involved in, in board games since the 1970s. I'm dating myself here. Um, and I want to see vitality, growth, complexity, because, you know, there is a point, and this is something I think I mentioned when I, I did a, a podcast on meeple syrup, uh, where I said, you know, the, the big thing is that that growth and complexity and vitality does not happen when gatekeeping happens. And, and the parallels I, I, I draw to this are from early tech. There were companies that said, no one needs a computer. Women don't need a computer. Um, racialized people don't need a computer. You know who needs computers? Uh, white, middle-class engineering professionals, they need computers. Nobody else is going to get it. You couldn't possibly understand. And in my early career in tech, I had a lot of people who talked to me like that and said, you don't need this. This is not for everybody. Right? You won't get it. Don't don't even bother. Guess what happened to the companies that felt that way? They they died. They died. 
right? They went by the wayside. And I, and I have many um, experiences, direct experiences with companies who had that attitude and they fell by the wayside. But the companies that didn't think that way thought in terms of market growth, their addressable market, growing, you know, sharing it with everyone, giving stuff away, teaching people about what, how cool this is computing, everybody needs this. They're now dominant, like global. In fact, you know, the Frightful Five, one of my clients, who I shan't name, they're globally dominant now because they had an attitude of, yeah, everybody needs this. Everybody needs this in their lives. And board games in particular predate the written word. They're so enmeshed in every global culture. And this attitude that, well, you know, it's only really for a very small group of people, you don't get it, is a very delimiting, stunting attitude. I'll stop there, but. I love that. I, 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 we have this conversation in marketing all the time in all the publishers that, uh, every publisher I've ever worked with, and, and many of them will not along and agree, right? I mean, what's the number one show on Netflix right now? By far, Squid Games, right? Out of the blue, um, the uh, uh, I, I'd love to um, rather than just echo your point though. Um, I, there's there's something there's in the pushback that I hear a lot, right? Is like, oh, okay, I get it. So we can only make we only have to make niche content now. I get it. We can't make broad content anymore, right? Um, to which I would say, like, uh, uh, no, absolutely not, right? Board, I mean, the whole point about board games, uh, tabletop games. I mean, let's all tabletop games, board games, card games, role playing games. They are broad. They're pan-cultural. They um, and the the type of stuff that you all are talking about, right? To to I I, I need to dumb this down a little bit for 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 the the for myself and some of the more casual observers, right? Is not the asks are so trivial here. It's not about only making bespoke content for very small niche audiences. It's about editing out or uh, removing things that. Do not add anything to that are not sorry that are not um, principally important to the game, uh, to the game in question. But randomly, just turn off a bunch of the audience, right? Like a, a a tile placement game with a totally abstract theme. Does it really need to be about? Does it really need to be a racist stereotype about the Mediterranean, right? Do we did we really need the brown colonists in Puerto Rico? It wouldn't have. It wouldn't have mattered if they weren't. Right. That that's the type of stuff we're talking about. Yeah. Can I uh, just add to that real quick? Oh, please. Yeah. I just wanted to say that that's exactly right. It's off putting. Um, and there's no there's no downside to like pushing the envelope and making things more interesting. Right. Diversity is interesting. Diversity is, is fun. It's cool. It's 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 telling new stories. And so part of why I was talking about monstrosity is it's like there's so much imagination, like potential there. Like you could tell you could design the coolest kind of fantastical beings. And yet we keep just telling the same stories using the same like awful monsters from Greek mythology. And and when you do like when you do kind of go to the same sort of safe formulas over and over again, like eventually you're going to have fans that are like, OK, I'm looking for something a bit different. Uh, and so you can kind of push the envelope there and draw in new people and also have like it be refreshing, like a breath of fresh air. 
Um, and the off-putting aspect comes in places where you might not expect, right? Like when you're a new player playing D&D, for example, for the first time and you flip through the monster manual, especially the newest edition where, you know, they made a lot of positive changes and you come across the hag, you're like, wait, uh, what? Why, why, why is this here? Like, this feels like something from like the icky, the icky days back in like the 1970s. Why, why is this still a thing here? Um, and I, I, I wrote my piece on the Hague with Dr. Aaron Trammell, who uh, is at the University of California, Irvine, and does excellent work on Dungeons and Dragons, especially talking about fandom and how, how these kind of things can, can um, manifest, this kind of off-putting uh, aspect can manifest in all these different areas and just make you feel like an outsider, make you feel like this isn't for you, that you're not allowed to have fun in this way, that it's like forbidden. Um, and I think Erica could probably talk a lot, a lot more about that. But it's just there's there's no downside to to making this more open and exciting for for more people. Uh, yeah, I, I want to build off of what Sarah is mentioning. It's something I've mentioned when I talk about comics, and that is when we limit our imagination to those old tropes or like the constant reemergence of like Greek mythology in like every form. We kind of limit our cultural imagination, and we also reduce the we take away the humanity of other cultural uh, traditions and cultural narratives because we assume um, it's not as quote unquote universal. When I think Eric, you mentioned the the current popu uh, popularity of Squid Game, you know that show is very much has is entrenched in much of Korean culture and Korean society. And there's references like I know for some people like in North America watching that show, it's like why is that a big deal? And it's be but you still the story still resonates with many people because i think it's hitting on something that is a global systemic <laughs> challenge um so i think when when we limit ourselves to stereotypes and we limit ourselves to uh using those old 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 kind of narratives and stereotypes um we're limiting our imagination and kind of only accounting for a very small uh, scope of humanity This seems like a lovely pause, which uh, the audience might be able to jump in and ask a couple of questions. Is that okay, panelists? We uh, love it. Great. Definitely. Um, uh, this is a question probably uh, specifically to Sarah, because it seems like a design question, um, but perhaps everyone has some insult, uh, in, uh, insight. Uh, Tin Star Games asks, how do we solve the problem that the human brain likes metonymy? We fear the unattractive. That's the question. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. I think it's a bit of an assumption, though. Um, I think that what we consider, uh, what we think, when we, when we talk about what the human brain likes, and, and we talk about it in terms of absolutes, like this is absolute biological truth, um, we can get into kind of a slippery slope there about like, you know, maybe not in all cultures, that's the case, or maybe not in all time periods, that's been the case. Um, and I think, I think regardless, uh, a monster, for example, doesn't have to necessarily just be something like physically horrifying that when you look at it, you're like, ah, um, it can be something that captures some other kind of element of, of uh, something that we're worried about or concerned about or something that might threaten us or something that might push us to think differently about things, right? Um, 
So the monster is an embodiment of transgression. And that doesn't necessarily always have to mean something that we might look at it and go like, oh, it's like it's it's a slimy blob. I don't like the way that looks or whatever. Um, It could be something that challenges us and makes us like afraid of what might be like within uh, or might be something um, sort of deadly in our own society that we're trying to, to avoid and not think about. So I think there are ways, and and there's a lot of work reclaiming the monster, the monster figure, and sort of thinking about the monster differently. And that's not to say the monster can't be like horribly evil and and the villain in the story. It's just uh, telling different stories um, and maybe avoiding the design of monsters that relate to the way real people might actually look in the world. Because there's so many other options for how you design your monster. You don't have to punch down, right? Like you just really don't have to. Um, So it's just a matter of making a choice. Like the way you design your characters and creatures, it's a political act right it it matters to people and maybe that person who is tired of seeing themselves reflected in the monster that gets killed in the game maybe for them seeing a different kind of monster and being able to play as a hero uh would be like life-changing for them it's uh it's important oh sarah that's sorry sorry you 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 push my button there because it's because like the the it's so important. I, I there's repeating that, that your choice, your choice in how to depict a monster is a political act, right? We talk about so much. So much of the discourse now is about, uh, like, you're either it's become so polarized, right? You're either you're either deep in the you're you're deep in this. You're a, you're you're a feminist. You're an intersectionalist, whatever, or you're apolitical, right? And it's um, it's so important for us to realize that you can't escape politics, especially, um, especially not, uh, especially through the act of avoiding politics is in of itself a political act. Uh, it's just, it generally puts you on the status quo side of how things are going on. So like the, the statement, like, I think monsters are great. I don't want, I don't want to make monsters political is essentially the same as saying, I like it the way it is. I am perfectly fine with, with gendered violence, with racialized violence. Uh, and all of the baggage that comes with that, I don't see anything wrong with that. The uh, I know that a lot of people who who push back, they don't actually feel that way. They're probably just tired or exhausted by the uh, by by the deeper meaning of the argument. But a hundred percent, it is political. Like you can't escape the politics of art. You just can't. Um, I learned that the hard way after getting my ass handed to me. Very. Uh, decisively over several years. Um, and I'm very f- thankful for it. Anyway, sorry, that was, uh, I thought it was important to repeat. Yeah, just to add to that, uh, define attractive. You know, it, one of the interesting things about um, just looking at looking his, at a historical content, and it's, it's really interesting because we're so, we're so, um, we're swimming in it, right? We're swimming in the ideology of our time. Right? It's the McLuhan quote of a fish knows absolutely nothing about water because there's no, anti- there's no anti-environment to compare it to, right? And ideology is the very same way. So attractive, attractiveness has changed so much over the centuries, right? What is currently considered unattractive is very different than, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And if you look at older media, it helps you to kind of see, oh my goodness, look at what villainous looks like. Look at what unattractive looks like in, you know, media in the, at the turn of the, in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, the the late 18th century even. 
look at it and ask yourself, are you comfortable with what bad, bad villainous, unattractive looked like then? And then put yourself back here and say, is there a problem, right? And it's that close reading of media that kind of opens your mind, especially when you look at it decontextualized by a historical piece of, of, of media. And you can see, oh my goodness, like that's offensive. And as we, as we evolve in our thinking, you know, that, that those definitions don't make a lot of sense, right? To Sarah's really good point. I'm going to jump in because there are some more questions. Um, uh, this one was probably in response to uh, what Erica was talking about, but I think you all might have uh, some insight. Uh, again, it's Tin Star Games asks, um, subcultures inevitably is inescapably create identity tags. Doesn't that become an inescapably become a kind of gatekeeping? Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think, I think when it comes to how people, the, the, the labels or the, the terms people wish to use for self-identification, I think what's important is that practice or that process of self-identification specifically. Uh, not everyone is going to be comfortable or can agree on what term or what words they wish to identify with or align themselves with. Um, and so, like, I think it's important that it's like that practice of self-identification, how someone wishes to identify themselves, that is their, the expression of their identity and their humanity. And so even though there might be disagreements, which I like, again, I, like I said, like fan, fan spaces or subcultural spaces, they're not as utopic as we would like to believe, which means disagreements are going to come up. And so I think it's important that you know, if someone identifies a certain way, it's important to respect that. And and to go circle back to a little bit about or to connect to something uh, Eric mentioned earlier in our conversation, I think it's important for anyone who's like overwhelmed by the discussions about why diversity and inclusivity matters or why, in this case, like the practice of self-identification is um, and respecting that is important. I think, one, it's it's important to acknowledge that there this is a big, heavy conversation. It will take time. I, I mean, I, I've been in school long enough that, I, you know, I've had I've stayed in school this long to hopefully try to learn more about it. But I think what's important is potential, like, one, don't beat yourself up. Two, take stock of what you do find interesting, what you find confusing, where what is a gap in your knowledge or understanding and look for resources and content on the Internet that might be able to steer you in the right direct in that direction of learning more by under by learning and understanding more. Um, I think that's a great way to not only build knowledge, but empathy. So even if there's a disagreement um, or you don't agree with with a certain label or how someone wishes to self-identify, it's important to extend that source of empathy and the respect. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, can I add just one minor point? Um, the... the um it's a little bit of a game theory problem too, right? Like the, the um, uh, subcultures do have identity tags, that's right, but, um, but it is mostly a reflection of the size and diversity of the subculture itself. And of course, as you get more and more and more niche subculture of a subculture of a subculture, you will end up with more purist identity tags because they've, because they've identified themselves into a very, very small niche. Um, 
And I think that's probably, it's probably okay. I guess it's probably like they've, they've chosen the space for themselves, but we're, we're mostly talking about, like when we're talking about gaming, gaming is not a tiny subculture, it's huge. It's a very, very, very big tent. And um, I guarantee you, like if, if we say gamer, which is a horribly loaded word right now, but if we say gamer, that, that has as many identity tags as we can possibly name. Even board gamer, card gamer, fantasy gamer, hardcore gamer, puzzle gamer. There's, I don't think there's, uh, uh, Erica uh, brought up the point that uh, not everybody agrees on what the identity tags are. I believe that's healthy. That that shows that there is diversity within that subculture, and that disagreement is a uh, is a uh, a sign of that vitality. I love that point so much. I love that point so much because we're all in the constant. Uh, we're all constantly trying to make meaning of things. We're trying to make connections. We're trying to develop our understanding. We are. Or we are. Whether you like it or not, uh, we are relentlessly learning, and we must take in new data to evolve ourselves. And I think the one thing that I will say going on the, this journey with the PhD is one of the things I learned uh, most that is most important to me, and I see it, is my ability to take in new information, shift, change, and unlearn, right? I have a lot of bad ideas, you know, empirically unsupportable ideas, you know, entering the academy. And reading, learning, being exposed, not centering myself all the time, you know, as a gamer, as a person, as a Canadian, um, and, and shifting my perspective and unlearning some bad discredited ideas has made all the difference. And, and it, I, I, I really, um, I, I encourage everyone to, to go on this kind of journey, just to Erica's point, like, it's all there. It's out there online. There's so much good information there's so many experiences you can be exposed to and it helps it enriches your life you know and now in in this new world taking being able to take in new data and and shift your behavior your perspective your action can keep you alive right um can make you more uh, more competitive if you're doing a business um so why wouldn't you want to do that dear we god have... new ideas are inspiring we Sorry. have one more question from the audience, and so I am going to ask uh, a dreaded thing for any uh, academic to be asked is for you all to be concise and give a quick answer on this one. Sorry, I brood. Um, paperback writer asks, uh, we're talking a lot about representation of characters, which is super important, but I'm wondering if the panelists have any thoughts about inclusive mechanics in games. What are other ways that games can be more approachable to diverse gamers? I have so many things to say about this. Um, yes, uh, the mechanics are so important, and I think that's my next—that's my next big paper, um, because you know there, there's a lot of ableism in gaming, right? I worked in a game company, just really quick, um, and there was you know working with developers, and they were like, it was kind of mean. They were all like, okay, they're oh people are going to just be so mad here, or they're, and they were purposely making something awful, like hard, <laughs> and people, I and I said please don't do that. You know, we got into a, a little pitch battle. Um, I used to work in video games. And why do you want to do that? Um, that that actually is another delimiting factor in, in the sector. So I'll stop. Yeah, we got another a minute left for someone to say something, and then we, we got to wrap up. 
Uh, I'm a game designer. Subtitles, yes. Oh my God, yes. I mean, I'm a game designer. I've been doing this for 20 years and I've learned so much in the last two years. Uh, largely, I mean, I'm gonna embarrass you again, but like the three women here have taught me so much about this. Like the, um, you've heard the phrase inclusion by exclusion, right? A lot of what we're talking about here is not actually like you have to learn a whole bunch of new skills and new new things to add to the to the soup. It's about surgical and careful exclusion of unsavory, not good things. So get like recognizing mechanics as or play dynamics as ableist, as unapproachable, as difficult for the sake of difficult. We're not saying you never get to make games with that are hard. You never get to make games that are uh, colorblind, unfriendly, whatever, but it just, it's gotta be, a, the challenge here is make that a choice. Make that a, a choice that has thought put into it. If you are excluding a, a, a part of your audience, have a reason for it. Otherwise you're doing it by default, you're doing it thoughtlessly and you're limiting your audience for no good reason. All right, the um, so, Oscar music is playing. Uh, why don't we uh, all I, sign off and say goodbye to our, uh, again, say who you are and how people can follow you. Uh, I'm Tanya Pobeda, and I am at at Pobeda Tanya on Twitter. Uh, I'm Sarah Stang, and I'm at at Sarah underscore Stang on Twitter. And I'm Erica with, um, with a K, so it's Erica Chung 182 uh, on Twitter as well. I'm Eric. I have enough followers. Follow these three. Very nice of you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.